Let's begin with prayer. Gracious God, as we come before your word, we pray that Jesus, one who taught so well in ancient Palestine, would teach us again. And we thank you for the presence and assurance of your spirit that you can and do and will speak to us. Give us hearts to hear and to understand and to respond that we might enjoy life abundant in the way that you wish for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome once again. We're glad that you're with us. For those of you who may be new to us, we have been going through a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And we have been learning about Jesus, courtesy of this fellow Matthew, who considered himself to be uh, not just a disciple, but a scribe, a student of Jesus, and who had a passion to teach us the ways and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the passage that uh, Shina read for us uh, today has been written by Matthew and inspired by the Spirit. And the topic, as you probably had noticed, has largely to do with the coming of Jesus. And so I'd like to direct you to uh, the outline that is on page four of your notes, as well as uh, the, the, uh, the text of scripture, which is on page one and two. And my reading goes a little bit further than 44, and maybe I'll just do that to round things off. Not Shina's fault, but probably mine for updating the passage a little bit later than I'd indicated. Verse 45 on page two, I'm just continuing the gospel reading. Who then is the faithful and prudent servant whom the Lord stationed over his household in order to give them food in due time? Blessed is that slave whom his Lord finds doing such when he comes. Truly I tell you that he will station him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does which he does not know and will cut him off and place him with the hypocrites in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthews chapter 24 and 25 are on preparing for the return of Christ. And as we go through Matthew 24 and 25 together over the next few weeks, we find ourselves in a series on that very topic, preparing for the return of Christ. When Jesus comes back again from heaven, and when the dead are raised and we are united with him, it will be a glorious reunion. And as I've indicated on the top of page four of your outline, last week we looked at seven signals of the last days. Seven things to watch for before the Lord comes. And five of these were shadowy kind of portents, things that were important but which could occur over and over again and which are rather generic. And two were crystal clear and a sure indication that Jesus is coming. And I had used an acronym called DUPE, A-D-T, D-U-P-E, A-D-T. And you can see it there on the top of page four. And I put in shadowy figures the general portents. They are deception by false messiahs, upheavals, persecutions, as well as tribulation, which is going to become important in a minute, global evangelism, then the coming of the Antichrist, 
one who's also called the um, abomination of desolation. This appears in 1 Thessalonians or in 2 Thessalonians to be an individual who is against the plan of God and who is just a demonic incarnation of everything wrong, as well as the destruction of the temple. Then deception is mentioned again in chapter 24, and then finally, the coming of the Son of Man. And you can see that um, the acronym has uh, a little underline under each of the letters that pertains to it. Dupe, A-D-T. And so last week, we got a picture of the coming of the Son of Man, and we went up to the point where there's a reference to the actual coming of the Son of Man in chapter 24, verse 29. And it refers to the tribulation, and then it talks about the coming of the Son of Man. But immediately after the anguish of those days, we read in verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that is Jesus. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the corners of the heavens, to their other corners. That's a description of the coming of the Son of Man after a period of tribulation. And so if we were to look through the rest of our passage and come up with a summary of it, it would be something like the title of my sermon for today, which is Living in the End Times, Things to Watch For, and What to Do. Living in the end times, that we are. The temple has been destroyed. An abominable son of man came in the first century AD. And so we're living in the end times, but there are yet a few things to watch for before the Lord comes. And in the meantime, we're told what to do. Things to watch for and what to do. And a bottom line is, be ready and be diligent. Be ready and be diligent. The year was 1972. The advent of the jumbo jet. And the Lockheed 1011 was a wide-bodied jet that carried hundreds of people. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 left from New York, bound for Miami, with a three-person crew in the cockpit, the pilot, the co-pilot, and the first officer. During the course of the flight, they noticed that a light that indicated that the front nose landing gear had not locked into position as they were coming down to land. And they were concerned, of course, that uh, if the nose gear had not actually locked, um, Maybe it would collapse. And so they got permission to go up and to um, do a flyby, and they returned to altitude. And it was clear that the nose gear was down, but it wasn't clear that it was locked. So the captain sent the, uh, one of the officers down to confirm that the nose gear had indeed locked. And they were in cruise at altitude during this time. And they were preoccupied with the light switch that indicated that the nose gear had not been locked. And the three pilots were consumed by paying attention to this faulty light bulb. 
And they failed to notice that somebody had inadvertently bumped the cruise control leveler. And the plane began to descend without them having any idea that it was descending. And they thought that they were still at full altitude. A faulty light bulb, which consumed their attention, led to the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 401. Most of the people on board died. There were only two of the crew, uh, two of the four cockpit crew, or two or three of the four, two of the, of the cockpit crew. Maybe there were four cockpit crew. But anyway, there were two of them that survived, and 75 people survived. Another 168 passengers died. Why do I tell that story? I tell that story because in our passage today, we read of people who are fixated on daily life. They're just going about their daily business. They're paying attention to this and they're paying attention to that. And what they haven't noticed is that Jesus is going to come again. And our passage reminds us of that fact and tells us that there's a time that we don't know of that's going to be the time when he returns and it's gonna happen so quickly and so suddenly and without warning that there won't be time left to do anything about it. And unless we're ready in advance, it could be too late. And so we have lessons today on things to watch for and what to do. We're under two headings. First of all, things to watch for and what to do. And the things to watch for have mostly to do with verses 29 to 35, which I'm going to focus on for the bulk of today. And then I'm going to touch briefly on what to do because over the next week as well, we're going to have more lessons on what to do. Verses 29 to 35 are predictive prophecy. Uh, Jesus is foretelling the future. And there are lots of predictive prophecies in the Bible, and they are a challenge for us to understand. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to just mention a few things that make understanding predictive prophecy challenging. Well, there are four things that occur to me that are relevant to our passage. And this passage has generated quite a bit of controversy in part for these four reasons. And if you want to study uh, prophecy, whether it's in the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel or in first or second Thessalonians or here in Matthew in the Olivet Discourse, these things are helpful to remember. They're general guidelines. And the first is that the future is now. Much of the future has come already in Christ. You see, Jesus is, uh, the Jewish people were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, to come at once. But what we didn't understand is that Jesus came in two stages. And when he came the first time, he kind of brought the future into the past. And he said, the kingdom of God is right here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus was incarnate on earth, teaching and preaching, the kingdom was there. But yet he taught us to teach, thy kingdom come. So a piece of the future has actually come into the present and there's been an overlap. Yesterday we had uh, the prayer meeting at the Taylor household and the Taylor household was not expecting the prayer meeting to be uh, there. So I uh, hired Trevor who's with us to help clean house. And one of the things that we did was we washed some windows in the kitchen and two of those windows at the bottom are sliding windows. And in order to clean them, you have to kind of pull each one out and clean both sides. But one of them can slide back so that you have a double thick window. And as you look through that double thick window, when one kind of slides past the other, you can't tell 
which window is dirty and which window is clean. And it's the same with prophecy. The future has come into the present, and because of that, it's sometimes hard to tell whether Jesus or the Bible is talking about part of the future that's yet to come or part of the future that's already come in Jesus and with the gift of the Spirit. So one of the challenging things is that the future is now. Another of the challenging thing is that epic moments of the past divine judgment are paradigmatic, and thus they recycle in the future. And last week I gave an example or several examples from the Old Testament how there was an event in history that indicated God's judgment and God's punishment, and it became kind of paradigmatic. It symbolized how God works. And so there would be a future sequence of events that would happen that would be rather like the one that happened before. The destruction of the temple in the time of the Israelites, descending of exile, uh, that was paradigmatic. And so um, in the time before Jesus, there was a figure who came like the figure who was there to destroy the original temple. We're told that there is a, an, an abominable figure who came in the first century who was like one a few centuries before, and we're told that one is going to come again. So the analogy in this regard might have to do with, as I indicated, um, looking out through a window. It's hard to tell, perhaps, when you look through a window like this, if you don't have perspective to know what is in the foreground, those emblems, the greenery on that stained glass part, and the forest behind. So there's an, an, an issue of a kind of recycling that can happen. Another is that the future is often multi-layered. This is related to the second point. One is hard to distinguish from the other. The fourth is that sometimes one can happen uh, is, the, is that the future can be telescoped. Um, and by that, I mean that something that appears to be happening or to happen soon is actually delayed. Uh, I think I mentioned once before that we live, when I grew up, in a view of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, the Rocky Mountains were kind of in our view as we looked west from our home. And on some days, they all looked as though they were just all kind of in a line. But if the sun shone from above, you could tell that they actually weren't all in a, in a line. There were some that were further back than others. There were some that were in the foreground, and there were some that were further back. And so these are some of the challenges that you face when you look at predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. It's not that God made a mistake, it's that God has a plan. And so um, God's behavior is the same, and patterns are repeated over time. So that's what we find in Matthew chapter 24, verses 39 to 35, or 29 to 35. And I say this because there's two cases in verse 29 and in verse 34, when it seems as though the second coming has already happened. In verse 29, it says, but immediately after the anguish of those days, presumably the first century, the Son of Man comes. But when you think about the fact that the, that the, um, the abomination of desolation happened in the first century and will happen in the future, that immediately has to refer to the event that's yet to come and not the event that happened in the past. So too, Jesus says in verse 34, truly I tell you that this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. You might be tempted to say, well, they did take place. The temple was destroyed. There was a time of tribulation. Um, a Roman soldier, a Roman conqueror came and uh, abominated the temple. 
Um, so what's going on here? The point is, is that something that happened in the past also happens again in the future, and that's what we're to look for. We're assured that this is the case, and I think Matthew anticipates the confusion because he gives us Jesus' words in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If you don't understand, the problem is not with my word, it's with your understanding. God's word is sure. God's words will not pass away. And if there's something we don't understand, then we need to go back and take a look at it again. So as we come to to look at things to watch for, I want to suggest that there are two things that are yet to come. And I'm going to monkey a little bit with the ADT from last week. And I want to suggest that the D is now to be better understood as the destruction of the temple. That happened in 70 AD. And since then, we're living in the end times. So we are end time Christians. The church is an end time institution. And now we need to look forward to where we are at. And by that, I mean, we look for the A and the T. I'm at the bottom of page four, just above the, uh, the, the line. We've seen the destruction of the temple. So here is where we are at. We're looking towards a time when the abomination of desolation will happen again. Paul tells us about this in his letters to the Thessalonians. There's going to be somebody who's come who is a demonic figure who's going to deceive a lot of people, who's going to set himself up as God, and who's going to put himself kind of in the place of the church, as it were. He's going to try to take over the role that is rightly that of Christ. And it's a time of lawlessness. It's a time of anarchy. It's a time when people do whatever they jolly well want. And it's a time of uh, persecution and animosity. And then there's going to be a time of tribulation of unparalleled magnitude. So where are we at? We're living in the end times and we're still to look for the A and the T. The abominable showman, a showy figure who is a demonic figure, and also a time of tribulation. This explains, and I hope you're following me. If not, I've done my best and just pray for God's help and intervention. This it can explain why sometimes the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ as though it could happen in an instant, and how at other times it talks about how there are certain things that need to happen. If you're at the top of page five, notice with me. Despite the future abomination and tribulation, the imminency of Christ's return is possible now because We've already had a destruction of the temple. We've already had an abominable figure appear in the first century. We've already had a time of tribulation in the first century. So if Jesus were to come right now, all of those things that are predicted had already happened. But Paul seems to tell us, and the book of Revelation seems to tell us, that there's another time we should be looking forward to for an A and a T, an abominable figure and a time of tribulation. So we need to read these passages carefully as they are double layered, as though part of the future is with us. And that might help you when you come to um, this chapter and read it on your own. It might help you also uh, when you come to read the book of Revelation and some others. So my friends, we're to watch for a time of abomination and a time of tribulation. There are certain signs that are gonna be an indication 
of the Lord's return. It may not surprise you to find that in the course of my studying these phenomena, I've been kind of conscious of this. And, you know, as you hear of, um, um, you know, war in Russia and Ukraine and, and Putin acting with more chutzpah and doing things that are more evil um, and, and senseless as time goes on, you begin to think, wow, I mean, this guy is a global kind of incarnation of a lot that's wrong and a lot that's evil. And I think it's healthy to think, gosh, maybe we're living in the end time. On the other time, you think, well, that's what Christians have always thought through, 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 through 2,000 years. Yeah, but one thing is sure, we are closer now than we ever have been in the past. And at the very time when we might be tempted to become lethargic and sort of say, ah, yeah, not going to happen, this passage tells us it's going to happen suddenly, it's going to happen soon, and it's going to happen at the very time that we're all saying, ah, yeah, probably not now. It's going to be at an unexpected time. Jesus is coming again. And the question is now, secondly, what to do? What do we do now that we're living in the end times at the doorstep of Christ's return? Well, Matthew gives us some practical advice about behavior. And I've listed those practical things, and they are on... Uh, the top of page five, live life as a diligently watchful, consistently faithful scribe, another word for that is disciple, who sustains others, who's a blessing to others, who participates in the Great Commission. But I would be remiss if I simply went to that without telling you something that's even more essential to the Bible. And that is that you don't get ready for the second coming of Jesus by living a diligent life. You can't. You're a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinner. God's standard is perfection. We don't have a chance of pleasing God. We please God by putting our faith, childlike trust in Jesus as our Savior, as the only one who can rescue us. And my friends, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that he paid a penalty for our sins so that we might not have to suffer the consequences of our sins. So the most important question to ask as you prepare and as we prepare for the return of Christ is, have you trusted in Jesus, as we like to say in evangelical circles, and rightly so, as your personal Savior? Easy way to ask, what are you relying on to be accepted before God on the last day? Oh Lord, I went to church, I attended Christ the King, or I intended Knox Presbyterian, or I attended, you know, roadside Pentecostal. Um, no, I was baptized. No, I tried to live a good life and I did more good than bad. That won't cut it. The only way that you can be ready for the return of Christ is to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in him as we say, your personal savior and to trust his death and the work that he did on the cross as filling in for you as substituting for you. And so all of us who are going to, to heaven are not going because of our goodness. We're going for one reason. We are piggybacking on the righteousness of Jesus. We are depending wholly upon him for our acceptability before God. That is, that is assumed in our text. And as we come to the other passages that were read, 
There are a few other things, but I want just to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, if you've never heard this before or you've heard it a million times but aren't sure you get it, please don't leave this place tonight without talking with somebody or finding out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, somebody who trusts in him. He died for you. He gave his life for you so that you could go to heaven, and it's a gift. But there's a transaction here that's very simple but crucial, and I want you to trust in Jesus as your Savior this day. And assuming that's the case, there are a few other things to watch for, and they're outlined in the rest of chapter 24, and I have them summarized under the lesson of the fig tree and three examples. And I'll touch on them briefly because these themes are going to occur again over the next few weeks. The lesson of the fig tree is, folks, when you look at a tree and you see that there are uh, leaves beginning to bud, you know that winter is over and that spring is here. So too, when you notice that dupe has happened and the destruction of the temple has happened, you know that we're in the last days, that summer is right around the corner, that soon there will be a time when Jesus will come and he will appear on the clouds, as it were, with power and great glory. There'll be something like a trumpet and we will call up together those who know him and love him from all of the corners of the earth. It's a sudden event. Jesus is near at the very gates. And therefore, we need to be ready. In the days of Noah, they were like the flight crew on Flight 104. They were just paying attention to the wrong thing. They were looking at light bulbs rather than the fact that they were losing altitude. We're working on paying for our mortgages. We're planning holidays. We're obsessing about our appearance. We're goodness knows what else. But what we should be really doing is paying attention to the fact that Jesus is coming again and being ready for him, he could come at an instant. And when he comes this time, it will happen so fast that there will be absolutely no time to make things right with God. So in the days of Noah, it was sudden and unexpected. Two people were at work, couldn't tell the difference between them by their appearance, just looked like an ordinary day. And all of a sudden, one person was taken and the other person was left behind. There are two women, the Bible is very inclusive, there are two women who are grinding at the mill, can't tell the difference between them, an ordinary day within a flash, one is gone, the other is left. The one who's gone is presumably taken to be with the Lord and reunited with him in, 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 a, in a heavenly experience, and the other one is left, just like in the days of the flood, with the waters to come over them and for there to be no hope. A second example is given in verses 42 and 44, and it has to do with burglary. Jesus said, Be vigilant because you don't know what day your Lord comes. But know this, that if the homeowner had known at what watch of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This week in our kitchen, on the kitchen table, there came a, a newspaper article, um, and it was a, a local newspaper, and I flipped through it, as I sometimes do, and I noticed that there was a list of burglaries in the neighborhood. It tells you where the burglary happened, and it also gave you the time of day when it happened. 3 a.m., 2 a.m., noon, 4 p.m., and I thought, 
my gosh, people are robbing houses here in the middle of the day. Sometimes it happens in the middle of the night. Well, of course, if you saw your address and you knew that somebody was going to come and rob your house at 2.30, I think you'd probably book a little time off work at around 2 to make sure you were home by 2.30, right? Jesus says that he's going to come like a thief in the night at a time when we don't expect. And there's no opportunity for us to kind of second guess and know what's going to happen. So the lesson is be vigilant, be alert, be ready. Then in verses 45 to 55, we have what is described as two management styles. And here Jesus describes a servant who is over his household, and he's doing what Christians should do. And I want you to pay a particular notice just at verse 45b. Yes, we're to be at the mill uh, grinding. Um, yes, we are to be uh, eating, drinking, having a good time, marrying and giving in marriage. But what are we really to do? We're to do what this householder did in verse 45b. The Lord has stationed us over a household in order for us to give others food in due time. We're to be a spiritual blessing to others. In other words, we're to fulfill the Great Commission. We're to go telling other people about Jesus and encouraging them to be baptized and become followers of Jesus. And the passage tells us that blessed is the one whom the Lord finds doing that work when he comes in an instant. Truly, I tell you, he says in verse 47, I tell you that he will station that person over all of his possessions. There will be rewards for a faithful servant. But in verses 48 to 51, he says, but if that wicked servant says in his heart, ah, nobody around. I thought he'd be here by now, but working pretty hard. I'm taking a little bit easy, you know, put up my feet. Certainly no indication that he's coming anytime soon. You slack off, or worse yet, you sort of commit apostasy. Uh, you start abusing other people. And uh, you, live the, you live the life of just uh, somebody who is, is utterly thoughtless to the things of God. The master will come on a day when you don't expect and in an hour which you do not know. And you will be cut off and placed among the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friends, there are signs of the coming. They involve where we're at. Look for the abomination. Look for tribulation. Then Jesus will come, and because he's coming so quickly, it's really important to be ready. It's really important to put your trust in him as your Savior now. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, to be diligent and faithful by the power of his Holy Spirit. As Eastern Airlines Flight 401 unwittingly began to descend without any of the flight crew becoming aware, there's a cockpit recording that is ominous. An alarm went off that indicated that they were at a dangerously low altitude. I tried to find it on my laptop and I'm just gonna transcribe it literally, but I'll give you the gist of it. You can look it up on uh, Wikipedia or Google. But the alarm goes off for um, the fact that they're dangerously low. And the captain says, what is that? What's going on? And they all of a sudden realize we're not at 30,000 feet, we're at 300 feet. And the second officer is still down working on the landing crew. And at that point, the captain just kind of goes, what? And then the sound is over. The plane has crashed into the Florida Everglades. My friends, we won't even get an alarm sound. That's the warning of this text. Look for the end of the time and make sure that you're ready 
because the time to be ready is now. Amen.